If you would go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 1 through 17. And as you turn there, you'll notice that for that passage, verses 1 through 17, uh, the title in, in most of your Bibles probably says something like this, The Lord's Covenant with David. The Lord's Covenant with David. So this word covenant isn't one that we use very often. It's not even a word that you'll see in this text. Not in this passage anyways. Um, but it's, like I said, it's not a word we use very often, but the concept I believe we're all extremely familiar with. The idea of a covenant we understand well. We make covenants all the time. I made two very big covenants last year. Uh, one of them was uh, my marriage, right? That was a big covenant. I made uh, a vow to, to Ashley to, to hold her and to, to keep her and to be with her and to love her for as long as uh, we both should live, until death do us part, right? That's kind of the, uh, the language that we use, that kind of covenant idea. I made another big covenant last year. Uh, I got a, a mortgage. That's a covenant, right? That's a, that's a promise that, that I'm going to pay the lender. It's a covenant between me and the lender. Uh, if you have an employment contract, you have a covenant. Uh, all these different ideas, of, of, there's different ways that we use covenants in our day-to-day -day life. Ashley was telling me about a, a deed that she looked at when she was looking at some client's information at work the other day. And the deed even had kind of covenant language in it. It even said uh, to have and to hold. It was, it was something like, we, like you would say in a marriage vow. Uh, but we make covenants all the time, and, and more than we even realize, a covenant simply means an agreement. Uh, but we say they're used in Scripture quite often, and they are a key uh, component, a key kind of idea to the way in which God plans redemption and salvation. He uses these ideas of covenants. Uh, and they're so important to Scripture that many people break down the Bible as a whole based on covenants. That's called covenant theology. Break it down by the covenant before Adam and Eve fell, the covenant after they fell, and covenant that we have with Christ and that kind of thing. There's different covenants throughout the Bible. But one thing that we see for sure in Scripture is that uh, covenants are a way in which God blesses His people, a way in which God leads His people, a way in which God tells His people His plans for them, for the future for them. It's a way that He calls them to be faithful to Himself. They're, in, they're important to God. And, and here in chapter 7, we're going to see a covenant that, that many people would probably call the most important covenant of the Old Testament. So if you would read with me, like I said, you won't even see the word covenant in the text, but this certainly is a covenant between God and, and David. Let's read chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving around, moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak, of, speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you the rest, I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for uh, your word. I pray that you would help us as we look through it and try to open it up, dear God, and try to understand what you're telling us, dear God. I pray that you help me speak clearly in a way that uh, glorifies you, dear God. And I pray that you would mold us by your word and let us be made more like your son, Jesus, through it. I always have to pray in your great and holy name. Amen. All right, so like I said, we come today to, to what some people call the most important covenant. I even read one person say that this was the most important chapter in all of the Old Testament, the most important passage of the, of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, God is renewing His promise for His people, for David. So we start off here, and we're told essentially that this is finally a time of peace for David. Verse 1 tells us that he is able to rest from his enemies. So think about it. Most of David's recent life, and probably most of his life in general, was, was not restful at all. Think about uh, how he fought off lions and bears from the sheep. And then after that, he fought a Goliath. And after that, he fought uh, many armies over and over again uh, as he was um, under Saul, and then eventually running from Saul, and then fighting against the, Saul's son's kingdom. So we see that most of David's life has not been a time of rest. But here, he finally has rest. And in this rest, he makes an observation. He makes an observation in that something he hasn't thought of until this point, most likely. He probably hasn't had the time to think about it. But in verse 2, he says, uh, this is David speaking to Nathan. Nathan's the, the prophet, so he's like the priest or the pastor of Israel. He says, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So David made this realization. He said, here I am in this house. It's most likely some kind of palace-looking house. It's not most surely a nice house. And he looks out and he sees the tent. And he says, there God is in a tent. And he doesn't explicitly say it, but he at least implies that he intends on building a house for God. And Nathan understands this, this offer and he says, go, do all that is in your heart, all that the Lord, or the Lord is with you. So Nathan kind of speaks for God and he says, go and do what you want to do. Go and do what you desire to do. And he says, God is with you. Uh, and I don't, we wouldn't blame him for doing that. I mean, imagine if, if me and Matt were up here one day and someone came up here and said, uh, here's $5 million to build a whole new church building. Like, I don't think y'all would be too upset if we accepted that, right? I mean, it's something that we would desire, something that we would want. And we'd even say, yeah, the Lord's with you. That's good, right? 
But, verse 4, we see this twist. We see this word, but. But, the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So, David wants to build God a house. But, God has something different in mind. God's going to say something different. In fact, God's going to basically reject this offer. God's going to reject this offer. And he kind of rejects it with a couple points. And that's kind of how we're going to break the first part of this passage down is by this rejection of this offer. The first point is that God chooses to be in the same condition as his people. God chooses to be in the same condition as his people. I think we see this most clearly in verse 6. He says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And he says that right after kind of saying what kind of seems sarcastic to David. He says, would you build me a house? Right? He's not, he's not actually asking. He's kind of uh, speaking to David in a way that, that we would kind of use in, in sarcasm. But he says, I've not lived in a house since, since Egypt or, or since my people were brought up from, the, from Egypt. So as the people were wandering, they wouldn't build houses everywhere they went. They moved in tents. So God said, since my people are in tents, I'm going to be in a tent as well. I'm going to dwell in a tent as well. God is saying, I want to be in the same condition as my people. And think about the idea of this tent that was called the tabernacle. Wh whose idea was it? Who gave the instructions for the tabernacle? God did, right? In Exodus, God told them how to make the tabernacle. He could have said, go and make this big, nice, fancy, linking log style house that you can take apart and put together. And then do that every time you move somewhere. But no, God says, build a tent. And that's what they do because that's how they were living. God chooses to dwell in the same condition as his people. He condescends himself to his people. And I think that, even here in, in 1 Samuel or in Exodus, when he builds the tabernacle, points us to Jesus, right? When we use this idea of God condescending himself, we're usually talking about the birth of Jesus, right? That was the ultimate condescension. God came from heaven and, and came to be man. But in the same way God lowered himself, God condescended himself to live in a tent. He came down from streets of gold, from a throne in heaven, to dwell and to let his presence be made to his people in the tabernacle. I think that's encouraging because we have no reason to think that he's not still doing that. If he did it in the Old Testament and he did it through Jesus, I certainly think God is still dwelling with us in the same way. He still chooses to be in the same condition as His people. And we see that uh, by His Spirit. We know that by His Spirit. God's Spirit dwells with us, and it dwells with us where we're at. It isn't, it's not conditional. There's not conditions to be met before God's Spirit will dwell with us, you know, not as far as physical conditions. We don't have to be living in a mansion. We don't have to be in the best of health. We don't have to be uh, in whatever condition that God would dwell with us. There's no standard of living that God has in order to dwell with us. And I think that you know, applies greatly to our corporate worship as well. As we're here in this church building, God's presence is with us. Just as much as it is in a church building ten times this size, somewhere in downtown Birmingham. Just as much as it is in a shack in, in Haiti or Indonesia. You see, God's presence isn't conditional. It's, it's unconditional, and it's where His people are. That's where God's presence is. Uh, so I think that's extremely encouraging to know that there's no standard we have to meet before God will dwell with us. We just have to have faith and trust in Jesus. That's, that's God's condition to dwell with us. So this is God's choice, right? God chooses to dwell with His people. 
That's what's so important about that. God wasn't in a bind when He was in the tent or in the tabernacle. God wasn't grumbling, saying, Oh man, how I wish I wasn't in this old tent. God doesn't do that. In fact, He tells David the opposite. He tells him the opposite. He said, Did I ever tell any of the judges to build me a house of cedar? No. God's reminding David, I don't need your sympathy. And then I think he drives this point home in verse 8. Look there at verse 8. He says, Now, therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, so this is to David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on earth. So God's reminding David, I took you from the fields. You were a shepherd, and now you are king of my people. God said, I don't, I don't need you to look down on my condition. I'm the one that brought you up from your condition. See, what, what David had done is he has built this nice house for himself, and, and in comparison to his house, the tabernacle looked ragged, right? It looked, it looked just just lowly compared to his house. And he looked down upon the house of God, upon the tabernacle. Now don't, don't get me wrong, I don't think David was sinful to desire something better for God, but it's going to be on God's terms. God's eventually going to have this, this temple built, this house built for himself, but it's going to be on his own terms, not David's. See, David just thought that he would up and just build this house for God. But God said it's going to be on his terms, and he certainly doesn't need David to feel sorry for his condition. So his first point of rejection was uh, that, that he chooses to be in that condition. He wasn't in a bind. He chose to be in that condition. That condition is the same as his people. And the second way that he kind of rejects his offer is to basically flip the script on David. He basically flips the offer around and he shows David what all he has done and what he's going to do. We see this here in verse 9. So let's read verse 9 through 11 again. He says, And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the, names of the, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house." You see, David wanted to make a house for God, but God says, I'm giving Israel a place to rest. I'm going to give Israel rest from their enemies. I'm going to give you, David, rest from your enemies. He's essentially saying, I don't need you to build me a house. I'm the creator. I'm the one who is doing these great things for Israel and who is going to continue to do these great things for Israel. And then he kind of finishes it off with verse 11 and just flat out says, I'm going to build you a house. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David says he wants to build a house for God, but, but God counters with, with, no, I'm building you a house. So, and then here in verse 9 through 11 is where we're going to kind of transition into this idea of a covenant. This is where we start to see this covenant language, especially in verse 11, this idea of a house. It's more than just a physical dwelling place. I think we see a dual meaning here. House means more than just that. It means kind of like a dynasty. He's going to give David a household, right? More than just a house, more than just his physical place, but instead a dynasty. And this becomes more clear as we begin to read the rest of this covenant. 
Verse 12 says, uh, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. So David's reign isn't eternal. He's not going to live himself. Uh, instead, his days are numbered, right? So he's not the one. He's not the Messiah. He's not going to live eternally. Uh, but then look at verse, the next part of verse 12. It says, I will raise up your offspring after you. And then it says, and I will establish his kingdom. So God tells David, you're going to die, but your offspring is going to remain. So now God transitions from this general promise to more specific vision of a future king, a future son of David. Look at verse 13. This is where we really kind of see this, this more specific promise. He says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God's saying, not, not you, David. But your son is going to build me a house. And who is that son? Solomon, right? That's, that's a direct uh, prophecy, really, of, of Solomon and his building of the temple. His throne will be established forever also. So that, that's God saying to David, your throne is going to be established forever. And then God gets even more specific. I like how he gets, he starts out general, then he gets more specific. He says in verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of, rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. So God says, your son is going to be a son to me. What does that mean? That means he's going to be a child of God. He will sin, but when he does, God's going to correct him. And, and perhaps one of the greatest things that David or any parent could ever hear about their child is this. He says, my steadfast love will not depart from him. My steadfast love will not depart from him. See, Saul fell away from the Lord. Saul broke the covenant that, that he had with God. Because of that, God withdrew from him and God took him out of his position. But David's son, Solomon, even though he will sin and commit iniquity, will never be forsaken by the Lord. I want, to just, I want us to just pause there for a minute and think about the reality of what God is telling David. God is telling David about his future son, who's not even born yet, who doesn't even know about yet, telling him about his faithfulness, about his salvation, so to speak. What an amazing promise that is. God says, your son's going to sin, but I'm going to correct him. I'm going to draw him back. He's going to repent. Now, I don't have first-hand experience of this yet, but I imagine that's something that many parents pray for their children, that, that they would love God and that, that God's love would, would not depart from them, that they, would, that they would know God, that they would never leave, that they would, that they would have a sure salvation in Christ. But David has this as a promise. David knows it's going to, be, it's going to happen, but that's a very specific promise. That's just to David. So that's not a general promise to everyone. And what I mean by that is it's not just... Not every child of every believer is going to be a believer. That's why it's important that we pray for children, that we teach our children their need for salvation and demonstrate and teach the gospel to them. I read recently a biography about Charles Spurgeon, uh, and his mother was, was such an influence on his life that he, he talked about her as being one of the greatest, or one of the first pieces of God's grace that he ever knew. And she would pray for them, and she would... Uh, teach them Scripture constantly. She demonstrated the gospel to them. And Charles Spurgeon said, said one time about his mother, he said, or this is what she was praying, rather. He heard her pray this. I don't know if she was praying it with them or if, or if she just 
prayed it in a way that he could hear, but this is what she said. This is, sounds harsh, but bear with me. She says, Now, Lord, if my children go in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at that day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. I mean, man, what a, what a, what a statement there. You know, sounds harsh, right? That she said that she, her soul would bear witness against her own children. But what she's saying is that she has so well demonstrated the gospel, that she has so well taught her children the gospel, they have no excuse not to lay hold of Christ. They have no reason not to, to be become uh, one of His and to lay hold of Him. And then one time she even, more specifically, she just talking to Charles or praying with Charles, she grabbed around his neck and she said, Oh, that my son may live before thee. Oh, that my son would live before this. She constantly prayed for him. And then he, he did. He laid hold of Christ. And then when he, when he went on to, to kind of have a firmer kind of foundation in his faith, he decided that, that he thought uh, that he wanted to be baptized. So he grew up in, a, in the Church of England, which was more like a, an infant baptism or an infant sprinkling kind of thing. And he, he asked his parents if he could be baptized. And she said, oh, I pray that you would become a Christian, but not that you become a Baptist. But he said, oh, oh, and I have, and so much more, you know. I've, I've become a Christian. And it's all because of her faithful praying for him and her teaching him the gospel that, that, that he would turn out the way he did, that he would become one of the greatest Christian influences of his time and probably any time, and especially in the place that he was at, in London in the mid-1800s, in a time where science was on the rise and religion was on, a, on its downfall. Uh, but... It's because that she was willing to share the gospel with him. She knew that it wasn't guaranteed. She knew that it wasn't an automatic thing, that just because she was faithful and just because her husband was a preacher, that her children would be Christians automatically. She knew she had to teach them. But for David, he had a promise. David did have a promise that his son would do all these great things, that he'd be loved by God, that even if, even if he died, his son, at least one of his children, would be faithful to the Lord. In the midst of these specific promises about Solomon, we see these general promises about the throne of David. You see, God essentially promises that it's forever, right? He says, you know, that this is a covenant, a covenant between David and God, a covenant that God will, will keep. You see, if David's son were to sin and fall away, that would break the covenant. But, but part of the covenant is that God says, when he, when he sins, I will correct him. So God is, is making Solomon keep the covenant, God is giving what He requires for this covenant. And what makes this covenant special is that it's more than just a covenant between David and God. It's a covenant between, uh, between God and, and His people. It's a covenant uh, that God had given to Abraham. And I want to show you this. I want to show you how this, uh, this connection to Abraham um, between these two covenants. And I actually made a slide for the first time on a Sunday morning. Um, but I want to demonstrate you some similarities, demonstrate to you some similarities between the covenant given to Abraham and the covenant given to David. Because that's what this is. This is a continuation of a covenant to Abraham and to God's people. So Abraham, David on the side, on the left side you're going to see the thing that, that makes it similar. So the idea of a name. The idea of a name. And you see it in Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 2. So I'll read the, the Genesis portion talking about Abraham, and y'all can follow along with the Samuel part. <coughs> So Genesis 12, verse 2, God says to Abraham, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So the idea of a great name. We see the same idea in 2 Samuel 7, verse 9. He says, And I have been with you 
wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Second similarity is the idea of children. Genesis 17, 1 through 2. 1 and 2 was, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So God promises him children. And we see the same thing here in what we just read in uh, 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Third is this idea of land. This is a big idea throughout the Old Testament, this idea of land for God's people. We see it in Genesis 15, uh, verse 18 through 21. It says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river. And then it goes on to explain all the different places that God is going to give them. And then we see it for David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And then perhaps the most, important, uh, the most important similarity between these two covenants is that they both point us to Christ. Both point us to Christ. Genesis 22, verse 18. So hear this. He says, In your offspring, this is God talking to Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You see, at that point in Genesis, there was only one blessed nation. There's only one blessed people. It was the people of Israel, right? They were the only nation that really knew God. But God says to Abraham, one of your offspring is going to make it so that all nations can be blessed. So that all nations can be a part of this covenant. And we see this truth clearly when we hear it in the New Testament. Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Every tribe, every language, every nation we see. So because of, of what Jesus, because of what He did at the cross, every nation can be blessed. And that's what we see uh, God telling Abraham. That's, that's, a, that's pointing to the picture of Christ, that all nations can be blessed. And then we see it in basically all of, basically all of 2 Samuel. Uh, we see this picture of, of Christ. You see, the immediate promise to David points us to Solomon. That's what the, 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 the local promise, the, the immediate promise points us to Solomon, a man who would build a temple for God, who will, will sin but will be corrected by God, right? But there's a bigger picture to see. You see, Christ is also called the son of David, right? The son of David. See, David's kingly reign is going to end. And Solomon's reign is going to end. And eventually the kingdom of Israel is going to be split. And eventually it's going to be eliminated. But if we can see Christ in this passage, if we can see Christ as the fulfillment of this covenant, then we can see that it isn't a failure for the kingdom to, to, to fall away. It's in fact going to be fulfilled in Christ. It's in Christ that the kingdom will last forever. It's in Christ that God eventually will give His people a rest from their enemies it's Christ who says, I go to prepare a place for you, which is what God told David, I'm preparing a place for my people. All these promises to David and for Israel are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. This covenant with David is extended 
to all because of what Christ would do. Of all the blessings in that covenant, talking about land and rest and, and peace, the greatest of all those things is the idea that uh, the love of God would not depart. The, the love of God would stay with His Son. And if you put your faith in Jesus, the same is true for you. God's love will grip you so tight that it will never let go. You will never be let go. And that's an amazing promise. If you've never experienced that, that love today, then today is the day to put your faith in Christ and be a part of this covenant. Be a part of this. In a moment, we're going to have a hymn of invitation, uh, and the altar will be open. And if you're in Christ already, this is a time to just worship at, at what we see here of the covenant that God made with David and how we're a part of that and how He keeps the covenant. He's the one that, that sent His Son to die for us that we could be blameless. It's not what we do. It's not a work-based covenant. It's a grace-based covenant. Let us pray. Dear God, I thank You for uh, this, this time that we've had to, to dig into Your Word, dear God. Uh, I pray that You would uh, let us be just amazed by it and be um, just in awe of what You've done for Your people, dear God, and, and how You've worked through these covenants for Your people, dear God. And uh, I pray that You would just convict us of sin, uh, that You would, uh, as You told David that You would do for Solomon, that you would, that you would draw us back to Yourself, that You would correct us, dear God, uh, that we may have life and that we may be uh, more like Your Son. And always I pray in Your gracious and holy name. Amen.